For most of us, the financial fallout from COVID-19 is even more frightening than the disease itself. Economists tell us that we're heading for a global recession that will be even worse than the Great Depression, and it's affecting the rich as well as the poor. Many who were living hand-to-mouth, as well as many who thought they were secure, have lost their jobs. And even those with secure jobs and financial portfolios have seen their investments and retirement programs drop precipitously. Now, that's not to suggest that one is as bad as the other. Having no money to pay bills or put food on the table is obviously worse than losing funds you were counting on for the future. But we are all currently being forced to re-examine our financial position. And that, in and of itself, is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, in our text for today, we find Jesus making a rich young ruler do just that. The account is found in the first three Gospels, and all three place it immediately after Jesus blessed the children, saying the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and that if we would enter the kingdom, we must do so like a child. It's in this context that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make it clear that receiving the kingdom of God gets complicated when we grow up and gain wealth. A lot can get in our way. Things that don't affect children, but things that can actually keep grown-ups out of the kingdom. Indeed, it is risky growing up without Jesus, especially if we become wealthy in the process. And as we take a look at this incident, I think we'll discover that instead of envying him, we ought to pity the poor rich man. Let's see what happened to him, why it happened, and what he missed. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. Jesus had just left the house after blessing the children and telling the disciples that they would need to develop childlike characteristics if they were to enter the kingdom of God when a man ran up to him. Matthew notes that he was young. Luke says he was a ruler, and all three tell us he was rich. He ran up to Jesus, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, 
What preacher wouldn't like to have such an enthusiastic seeker come asking the question of all questions? He doesn't come asking, can you help me with my personal problems? Or are your services traditional or contemporary? Or what kind of youth program do you offer? Not that those are bad questions and shouldn't be asked. But he came asking the most important question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He was asking the right question, and he came to the right person. He was sure Jesus could tell him what to do. He could tell Jesus was a good teacher. But when he said good teacher, Jesus kind of went off on him like I want to do when someone calls me reverend. Why do you call me good, he asked. No one is good except God alone. Now, why did Jesus say that? Liberal scholars suggest that in saying no one is good except God alone, Jesus was denying that he was God. Conservative scholars suggest Jesus was asking the man, do you really believe I am God or are you just being polite? Perhaps there was another reason Jesus asked the question. Maybe he was challenging the man's concept of good. You know, most of us think of good as a relative term. We are good if we're better than someone else. And obviously this man thought he was better than most. He thought of himself as a good man, and he thought Jesus was a better teacher than most. The problem with being good is you never know if you're good enough. So he came to a good teacher to ask, as Matthew records it, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? Was there something he had missed? Something more he could do to be considered good enough to obtain eternal life? Rather than just come out and state that there is no way we can become good enough by doing good things to be acceptable to a perfectly good God, Jesus basically asked the man how good he had been. He knew the law. Had he kept it? Oh, yes. The man had murdered no one, had never committed adultery, had never stolen anything. His honesty was impeccable, and he had honored his parents. Jesus even slipped in something that the Ten Commandments didn't include. Had he defrauded anyone on his way to financial success? No, he hadn't. He was a law-abiding, respectable man and had been so from his youth up. Now, that doesn't mean he had been a wild and rebellious teenager, but gave up his youthful discretions uh, when he became a man. He had been obedient from the time he could be held accountable for his actions. He was a good man. But apparently Jesus' question about goodness made him rethink using that term to define anyone. He even stopped calling Jesus good and merely responded to him as teacher. But he was a good man. He had done what the law required of him, at least with regard to his treatment of other people. He was a good man. Jesus could see that. He felt a love for him. But he also knew there was a problem. 
first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The second greatest commandment is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It was time for a test of this man's love for God and for his neighbors. So Jesus said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus had put his finger on the one thing that stood between this man and the kingdom of heaven. This man loved his property, his stuff, more than he loved God. When he was made to face it, he chose to walk away. If following Jesus meant surrendering his all, he wouldn't be a follower. He would, in fact, become the only man in the New Testament to refuse to follow Jesus when invited to do so. But at least he was honest. He was a good man. And he wouldn't play games, pretending to be something he wasn't. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't give up all he had worked so hard to obtain. If Jesus had just given him a good work to do, he would have done it. He was used to working hard and making sacrifices to get what he wanted. And, but he couldn't give up everything because everything for him would have been just too much. Why? Because he had so much. You know, if you don't have much, it's easy to give it up. But the more you have, the harder it is to give it up. And that is why he walked away. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. After the man left, Jesus looked around and saw shocked faces on his disciples. They didn't understand what had happened. So Jesus said, how hard it'll be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then he said it again. The disciples were stunned. Then he went on to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's quite a statement. And attempts have been made to tone it down for centuries. One of the most popular ways is to suggest that this refers to the difficulty a camel had going through a low pedestrian gate into Jerusalem but the gate known as needle's eye didn't exist when Jesus said this. The word Mark used actually means sewing needle, and Dr. Luke used the word for a surgeon's needle. 
Jesus wasn't talking about something that was difficult. He was talking about something that was impossible. And he wasn't the only one to use such an expression. The Babylonian Talmud speaks of the impossibility of an elephant going through the eye of a needle. Jesus simply used an animal with which those living in Israel would be more familiar. But again, why would he say it's impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom? Quite simply, because there's just too much to get in the way. You know, left to himself, any man, and especially a wealthy man, will put the things he can see and feel and possess before the spiritual realities of life. It's the natural thing to do, and the rich young ruler had done just that. He had obeyed the commandments that dealt with his external behavior. He had been a moral, upright man, but he had violated the first commandment. His wealth had become his God, and he knew it. That's why he walked away without saying a word. His many possessions had pushed God out of first place. And he wasn't the exception. He was the rule. So Jesus emphatically stated that it was very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples found that hard to believe. They were shocked by Jesus' statement. In fact, Mark used a strong verb here, meaning to strike out of one's senses. In other words, it blew their minds. The disciples thought wealth was a sign of God's favor, that if you were rich, it was due to the fact that God had chosen to bless you with riches because of your excellent character and upright nature. That was the standard Jewish belief. Jesus said that wasn't necessarily the case. In fact, instead of wealth being a sign of man's nearness to God, it's often the opposite. The disciples really had a hard time accepting this. If a rich man can't make it to heaven, who can? Jesus made it clear that no one can, not on his own, not a poor man or a rich man. Any man who trusts in himself and his possessions cannot be saved. And it's easy for a man's wealth to keep him from depending on God because he doesn't sense a need for God. You know, when things are going well, it's easy to think we can handle life on our own. But when things get out of control, we do look for help and that may be the silver lining in the COVID cloud. As long as a man thinks he can handle everything, he's lost and cannot be saved because he'll not confess his need and reach out for the grace God makes available through his son. Now, he may do that which is socially expected and respectable. He may even get religious and go to church. But if he's trusting in himself and his riches, he's lost. And his wealth can't save him. But it's not hopeless. He can be saved by the power of God. God can touch even a rich man's heart 
The Spirit of God can open his eyes to the fallacy of trusting his riches. In fact, he can even come to the place where he recognizes that he actually owns nothing, that he's just a steward of what's been entrusted to him for a very short period of time. When he recognizes that, he'll do with it whatever the Lord asks him to do. It's not his. It belongs to the Lord. If God says to give it all away, he'll do it. If God says to give one-tenth of it for kingdom work, he'll do it. Oh, whoa, wait a minute. Now we've gone from preaching to meddling. You know, we can quickly slide over the story of the rich young ruler because God hasn't asked us to give away all we have. But he has asked us to give 10% of what we have to him. In fact, Malachi says we are robbing God if we don't. Now, there's a very good reason God asked us to do that besides the obvious reason that it takes money to operate even a spiritual kingdom as long as it's in a material world. Tithing is God's way to keep us from trusting our wealth. Ever notice how it takes all you make to make ends meet? The more we make, the more we spend, and the more we need. If you're waiting until you think you have all you need before you give to kingdom work, you will never have enough. It doesn't work that way. God wants you to jump in and trust him. Don't trust that that last 10% will keep you afloat. Give him the first 10% and trust him to make the last 90% do what you could barely do with 100%. If you can't do that, you're suffering from the same spiritual disease that the rich young ruler had. And you'll miss what he missed. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The rich young ruler walked away from Jesus. But Peter and the other disciples had walked away from their possessions, their jobs, and their families to follow Jesus. They did what he refused to do, and Peter was pretty proud of what they had done. He called it to Jesus' attention no doubt expecting Jesus to congratulate them on their great faith and willingness to sacrifice all for him. But Jesus merely pointed out what they had gained by doing so. They had left their homes and families, but they had been rewarded by being made a part of an even bigger family. 
They had gained spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and children. Did you notice anything missing from that list? (laughs) Jesus included fathers in the list of what had been given up, but not in the list of what had been gained. Now, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I do find it interesting that we take note of it today on Mother's Day. And who could doubt the importance of spiritual mothers, something we always recognize when we're together by giving corsages to all women of the church. So, this morning, this bouquet is for all the spiritual mothers who are watching. Jesus promised we'd receive a hundred times what we've given up to be a part of the family of God, and we have. However, he was not making the promise that televangelists sometimes make, that if you sacrifice for their ministry, God will bless you financially and give you a bigger house or a bigger car or better job. He wasn't trying to bribe people into following him by promising they will be on easy street if they do. He makes that clear by adding, along with persecutions, to the list of things we'll gain in this life if we follow him. He's not promising a bed of roses. Life in the kingdom of God isn't always easy, but it is rewarding. We'll establish bonds with people that will be stronger than blood. And by acknowledging Christ's ownership of everything, we won't have to worry about what's mine and what's yours. We'll enjoy life a hundredfold if we'll let go of our claim to ownership of everything. If it's not ours, we don't have to worry about it and will not be consumed by it. That doesn't mean we can be irresponsible as stewards in caring for what God has entrusted to us, but we will hold everything loosely and use it freely, knowing it's not ours anyway. The early church understood this. And in the second chapter of Acts, we find all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, that doesn't mean we must adopt a communal lifestyle, but it does mean we must be willing to use what God has entrusted to us to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. The extended family we were made a part of when we came into the family of God. The rich young ruler missed out on that, as well as the eternal life he had come to Jesus seeking. Peter and the other disciples had made the right choice, but Jesus warned them not to assume by being the first to make the right choice that they would be rewarded more than others who would follow after them. And according to Matthew's gospel, 
Jesus went on to then share the parable about the laborers hired at different times during the day. The point being that we're not to calculate what we're going to get out of our relationship with Christ and compare what we've been given with what others receive. Our motive for coming to him should be love based on what he has done for us, not what he has done for others or even what he might do for us in the future. The rich young ruler might be excused for the choice he made because Jesus hadn't yet died for him. And even though Jesus had told the disciples what he was going to do, they wouldn't understand it until after he did it. So Peter's concern about what they were going to get for the sacrifices they had made is also understandable. But we know what he's done. Surely, we won't let our possessions stand in the way of what he did to be able to give to us the gift of eternal life. If the Holy Spirit convicts you of the need to get rid of something that's too important in your life, get rid of it. Don't let riches come between you and eternal life. Don't walk away from Jesus grieving because you have too much stuff. Don't let anyone look at you and say, pity the poor rich man. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging our need. We come poor in spirit. We've been forced to acknowledge the limitations of our power and wealth and independence. But let that be something good. Let it remind us of the need to entrust ourselves to you and not to depend on what we have. Help us to just trust you. Help us to be good stewards of what you've given. Help us to be generous with it. Guide us as we seek to minister to our brothers and sisters in need, now as in any time. But may we always recognize that we're paupers in your presence. You own everything. But because of your grace and your love, You've given us the world and the world to come. Help us to embrace that which, which changes everything. Change our hearts as we celebrate the gifts you've given to us through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.